you are listening to from Sobriety to Recovery with Jesse Mogul, episode 183. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to From Sobriety to Recovery. I am your host, Jesse Mogul, and I am in addiction recovery. Well, 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 my friends, have we had some amazing episodes recently. From morals, ethics, and values, to talking about how spirituality plays a role in your sobriety to recovery journey, rest and relaxing, and understanding that this whole journey is going to take some time to the languages we use and our past loops, our standards, our goals, our what day one, week one, month one. It has been a slew of awesome content. One of the things that I have noticed recently in the messages I have been receiving from you all is um, a lot of the use of the word relapse. And I really think that it's important that we dive into what relapse is. And why I think this is important to cover is that overarching, this whole episode is going to be about the stages of change. And I have talked about them in the past, but I haven't really given them their own spotlight. So we're going to do that today because in my mentor, my mindset and mentorship program that I'm doing through the University of Alabama, that is uh, an extended version of the Certified Recovery Peer Support Specialist program here in the state of Alabama, you can do the one week and you go and you do the eight hours of training for five days and you're certified and now you can go off and you can get jobs as a CRSS here in the state of Alabama. It is a fascinating program. I promise you that your state has something like it. Type in the name of your state into Google and then Certified Peer Recovery Support Specialist. Um, it's Here in Alabama, it's called Certified Recovery Support Specialist. And in Tennessee, it's called Certified Peer Recovery Support Specialist. And so it can be CPRSS, it can be CP, CRSS, it can show up however. But if you put in your state's name and then Certified Recovery Support Specialist, something's going to pop up. Then go down that rabbit hole, find out how you can be involved. It's free, at least it was in Tennessee and Alabama and in Mississippi and Georgia where I have further researched it. I don't know about your state because I've only done four of 46 left. Four of 50, there are 46 left. I do know my basic American geography. (laughs) Now, if you're in another country listening to me, I don't know if your community has something like this. Certainly, you can contact um, whoever is in charge of mental health within your community, country, whatnot, and you can start to do a little bit of legwork on this. But again, utilizing the keywords of certified peer recovery support specialist, you might be able to find something that's entry level into this world. Um, and that's certainly what this is. And then from there, you can go off and get more certifications. And I have a slew of certifications. If it doesn't necessarily mean that I am, uh, that I have been, you know, licensed or certified or have the credentials to go work at a deeper level. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. That's another four years of college, and I'm looking into that. So, anyways, back to why I'm bringing this up. The mindset and mentorship program has been focusing us a lot on stages of change and how to have conversations with people. They call it motivational interviewing so that we ask questions of the peer, of the client that gets them to um, come up with their own solutions. And I know it can seem odd for a lot of people who've been in the therapy world because in 
many cases, your therapist or, or someone, you know, even your sponsor might be very direct and say, this is what you need to do. And that works in certain situations. Now, we all have a little child inside of us that wants to push back when we're told what to do. And so part of the certified peer recovery support specialist is understanding and certainly understanding this within my own coaching world and all of the training I've gotten there is to ask really intuitive questions, ones that get the client, ones that get the listener, the attendee, the peer to go inside themselves and seek the answers that work for them so that they are able to find the resources that they already possess and then they can bring those out from the unconscious, from the from their peripherals, from their lack of awareness into your awareness. See, part of the NLP presuppositions, things that we presuppose in order to build ourselves towards our highest sense of self, is that everybody has the resources they need to succeed. And that there isn't an unresourceful person, there is an unresourceful state. And that can be physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual state. So you find yourself, let's say, emotionally sad and angry. It might be very difficult for you to find the resource of discipline or willpower or happiness or contentment because you are being overwhelmed by sadness and anger. So through NLP and the many things that we talk about on this show, we get you to go from your current state to your desired state. That's the journey we're looking for here. Where are you currently and where do you want to go? Then we begin to build a strategy that gets you on the path of heading toward where you want to go. Now, it's going to change, and there's going to be lots of flexibility, and we've covered this many times on this show, so you understand that where you think the destination is isn't really where it's at. I couldn't have told you five and a half years in, I'd be a two-time best-selling author with two top 50 podcasts and you know clients from all around the world and tens of thousands of listeners. I wouldn't have been able to even remotely have thought that possible. Sure, I could have imagined great things because I have a very vivid imagination. I mean, I still think that trees talk to me and that there's the potential for dancing, singing, talking bears in the woods. I ate a lot of acid. <laughs> My brain is very creative. But when it comes to settling into what is actionable and what I can really begin to attain, I didn't see most of any of this coming. Some one of one of my tribal members asked me the other day, you know, how is it that you got into where you're at? What is it you like did you, when you first got sober, did you see all this? And I didn't. I did not see any of this. I saw me just trying to stop puking up water and being able to, you know, stop sweating my butt off all throughout the night and actually get a good night's sleep. It was miserable. Three months in, I learned, I I was reintroduced to NLP, went to a thing, found more of it, got more into it, and it just, just, it just sort of snowballed. Now, my university experience with being on camera and, and knowing how to write stories and being a writer and a photographer and a web designer and all of this stuff within new media, that definitely I'm using now. I moved to Los Angeles and became a stand-up comedian and became a morning news anchor and was a red carpet interviewer and was a sports writer and certainly all of those things I'm using now. So I did go back and use skills and talents that I had um, evoked within myself and grown within myself, certainly I'm tapping into those now. You have your own set. 
of talents and skills that addiction took away from you. And I seek to reintroduce those to you through this microphone. It's going to take you understanding that these are talents and skills you have. You might need to sit down and write down things that you really do well or things you used to really like or things you used to do really well and really liked. I don't know what that combination will be for you, but I know it exists. So when we go in and start talking about the stages of change, we're going to be framing them around where you might be at because based on where you're at, you're going to perceive this information very differently than somebody else who is at a different stage. And why I want to start off with relapse versus lapse versus just merely going back out and drinking is because this continuously comes up in your messages. I've talked to my therapist. I've talked to some psychologists. I've talked to other coaches who work in this field. We're all noticing this. And while the way I'm going to frame it could be very subjective to my perspective, by no means am I saying this is definitively how the rest of the world will experience it. This is how I experience it. This is what my experiences have led me to believe other people experience it as. And when you're framing things around a relapse, that word has a lot of power. That word has a lot of strength behind it, right? It says, oh my God, I fucking failed, right? That, that, you don't say you relapsed as if like, this is empowering. It, it comes off as a very disempowering word. And this is why we're going to go over it real quick. So what is relapse? A relapse happens when a person stops maintaining their goal of reducing or avoiding use of alcohol or other drugs and returns to their previous levels of use. And I want you to be extremely mindful of that sentence and returns to their previous levels of use. Now, there's lapse, which is a temporary departure from a person's alcohol or other drug goals, followed by a return to their original goals. And when you write me, and when I hear people talk about this in meetings, and you've got a week or three weeks or six, and you've got a very short-term amount of time, and maybe you were addicted to meth and you quit everything, and then you went off and drank a bottle of bourbon, you didn't find yourself back in the flop house. You lapsed. Relapse is saying, fuck this shit. I'm going back to the way that it used to be. And you go bore four. If I were to go out and have a drink today, some people would frame it as I had a lapse. Now, now I would deem it a relapse. And now we're going to get into time periods. Okay, because I really think a lot of this has to do with the length that you've gone from your last drink to, let's just say you went off and let's say me, let's just bring me into this. Cause I, I have no idea where you might be in yours, but I can definitely tell you, let's just use me. Okay. So let's say five and a half years in, I go off and I drink a beer tonight. Now, would that be considered a lapse? If I had one beer and I said, Nope, that was it. That was, that was stupid. Why on earth did I do that? Let's go back to being sober. Right? So it's one beer right? We have to restart the clock. We don't get to claim that we haven't consumed alcohol in five and a half years. I got to restart it. Now, some, according to the definition I just read to you, said returns to my previous levels of use. I had one beer. So is one beer a relapse or is it just a lapse? Because back in the day, I was drinking handles of vodka in a day. Right, I'm like that. I'm like this woman. I had to watch a video for my class, and it was, her name was Jessie. Uh, funny enough, and she was on Dr. Phil, and she was drinking a gallon of vodka a day. 
right? So if I went back to my gallon of vodka a day, certainly that would constitute relapse. But as one beer, one beer is just a lapse according to the definitions that I have been reading online. Now, because I've put so much effort into my sobriety and recovery, and I've got the shows, and I've got the books, and I've got all this other stuff, I would deem it a relapse because there has been a tremendous amount of time. Now, some might say lapse, some might say relapse. But for me, I would frame it as, well, I relapse. I went back and I drank. It, a more empowering way would be to see it as a lapse. Now, for those of you with minimal amount of sobriety and recovery, a couple weeks in, you know, you've gone to a meeting or two, or you've just read some cool books, you listen to my show, and you haven't drank for 21 days and you go back and drink, you didn't relapse because you weren't that far into it. Now, again, subjective to my perspective, a lot of people will have a lot of different opinions on this. I need to make this extremely clear. Now, am I insulting you by saying that it's not a relapse because you weren't that deep into it? I don't think so. I think it's actually empowering. I think it's empowering because relapse has this weight. It has this gigantic, like, oh my God, I failed myself connotation to it. When in reality, you were only a couple weeks in. You're only a couple months in. Right, You can talk to many people about when recovery really begins. And again, subjective to perspective, I don't know when your recovery started. You could start going to you know, 30 meetings in 30 days. You could jump right into step work, truth work. You could be a lot of different things. And you could say, nope, no, nope, I am full on into recovery. I think real recovery takes some time to get to. I think you were riding a pink cloud for a little while. We're getting into our step work, right? But it's like when life challenges us with those emotional upheavals, when our physical body breaks down in some way and we can't go back to what used to be our crutch, to what used to be our savior. And now we have to renegotiate and navigate through all of these emotions. And the more we do this, the more we journey through our emotions, the more we're able to tap into what we fear, the more we're able to have these vulnerable, heartfelt conversations where we do humble ourselves and we step in into integrity. And we understand you have this humility, integrity aspect, right? It's extremely important that you have these things working for you. Gratitude, humility, integrity. This is the triumvirate. So and this is why I think this is so important to denote is because when y'all write and it's like you relapsed and you and it hurts, it pains you. And I understand. I understand. It would me too. It would it would it would bum me out to have to start back at day one to feel like I had done all this. But we've talked about this, so I'm going to repeat it until it really gets through everybody's head. One day of lapsing doesn't erase all those other days where you were into your sobriety journey where you were working on yourself. You were actionably working toward or in your recovery. It doesn't. I get it. You have to restart your clock, right? It's, you know, and I'll use a football phrase again, right? A quarterback starts the game 13 for 13, then incompletes the 14th one, and then goes another 12 passes without an incompletion. Yes, that's super awesome. They went 24 of 25, but they only had, you know, 13 in a row at the beginning and 12 in a row at the end. There is still that incompletion. It still restarts their completion clock, but it doesn't take away all those completions. It doesn't work that way. So you have this opportunity to embrace a more empowering way of talking about this, right? If you go years without consuming and then you dive back in and you go back to the original way that you were, you have full-on relapsed. 
But if you used to be into cocaine and heroin and LSD and all this stuff, and yeah, maybe you go back and you're drinking for a little while. It can be a lapse, which is like a lapse in judgment. It's like, okay, that was temporary. But then you return to your goals. So I want you to be extremely mindful how you're framing this. When you've only got a couple weeks in and then you want to beat the shit out of yourself because you quote unquote relapsed when you just started getting into sobriety and recovery, you didn't, you know, you, maybe you haven't gone through the treatment center, you haven't done all the steps, you haven't done all of this internal work on yourself. You just said, you know what, I'm going to step away from alcohol for the rest of my life. And then 13 days later, you were back into it, having a beer or two or something like that. You're lapsing. And there's a huge weight you can take off your shoulders when you think of that. Because it's like, okay, you might go a couple weeks and then lapse back for a few days and then a couple more weeks and lapse back. And now we're going to bring in the stages of change because I think it's extremely important that you understand how these roles are playing out in this sort of back and forth that you find yourself going into. When I was 29 years old, I want to say it was the summer I was 29, and back in the day, uh, the Tour de France was a big deal, still is. Not as much, but still is a very important race to me. It's a bicycle race. They go all throughout France. Back in my 20s, back in the early 2000s, the United States had a racer by the name of Lance Armstrong who was extremely popular with bicycling and cycling races because he would win the Tour de France ultimately seven times in a row before it turns out that he was blood doping the entire time. Now, I'm not going to go into all of that, but just because some people hear that he got caught using, um, you know, uh, substances that help him be better on a bicycle and they don't necessarily understand what that means. When somebody blood dopes, they go train in high altitudes because your body produces more um, white blood cells during the process of training at extremely high altitudes. And then you take your blood out of your body while the blood has all of these extra white blood cells because of the thin oxygen. You take this blood out and then you store it and you give it back to yourself later because it's got more white blood cells in it. It's, it's able to oxygenate your body much faster than your normal blood would be once you've gotten used to being back down on sea level kind of terrain. So if you put this blood back into your body at, a, at just the right time, it can add on 5-10% more um, um, oxygenation and muscularity and all, you know, your, your body will just work 5-10% to 10% better. Studies have been done. Don't ask me to tell you where I found them. I Trust me, this dude broke my heart. I did all the research. How is that effective? Well, when you're talking about a four-hour race and each day, if you can be 10% better than you normally would be, you could be looking at four to eight minutes faster. And four to eight minutes faster than everybody else in the field, you will demolish them. You will absolutely win. And he did. He won seven of these damn things in a row. And so back in the day, I'd get shithoused the entire month of July and watch Lance Armstrong beat the shit out of the rest of the world. Now, were they all blood doping? Yeah, some people say they were. Some people say they weren't. It doesn't matter. The guy I was rooting for ultimately cheated, and it bums me out. Still to this day, it's hard for me to talk about. Because back in the day, I sat there on my couch with a bottle of shitty-ass ABC liquor store vodka or rum, a whole thing of cranberry juice or OJ or sometimes no chaser, and a pack of smokes and a freaking gravity bong sitting in front of me, and i just get myself blasted for an entire month straight. And... Why am I telling you this story? Okay, this is why I'm telling you this story. Because <laughs> I, I remember having a buddy named Ryan and my roommate, Christian, who, who came in and they did this mini intervention and said, dude, you got to stop drinking like this. 
Uh, I'm going to, I'm leaving out some parts here and there, but I definitely remember they came over one day while I'm watching the tour. I was super annoyed because they were interrupting me watching the tour and I was pretty blasted. And they're like, look, just drink a little bit less. Start coming to the gym with me. Just cut back on it a little bit. And so I agreed, I acquiesced and I started going to the gym and I really enjoyed it. And it took me a couple months to actually enjoy it. Let me be completely honest here. The first few months, it completely sucked. I hated it. I was going in hungover most of the time. I was sweating my butt off. It was super, 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 super uncomfortable. But ultimately, Ryan would just, he just, he was like, dude, I'm coming over every day, you know, after class or after work, you know, three o'clock, I'm coming to get you. We're going to the gym. And he just, he never let up. He was relentless. Never, even whenever he'd show up and I wouldn't be in the mood and I'd bitch and moan. He, I mean, I, every single time I ended up in that dude's truck, we were going to the gym and I stopped drinking as much and I'd go two, three weeks and not touch alcohol at all. And then I'd have a weekend where I would just get tore up and then I'd go two or three more weeks. And it really started this cycle. And it wasn't until I was in my late twenties, this 29 on period where I actually began to have any kind of lengthy amount of sobriety where it would go more than just a couple days. I mean, there's a good strong decade where I don't think I ever went back-to-back days without consuming something, some level of an intoxicant, even if it was just a couple hits of weed. Ryan got me into this new world where it was like, let's not smoke some pot. Let's, you know, let's just, I mean, I still smoke cigarettes, but I didn't drink. And I would go, you know, I'd smoke weed every fifth day or something like that, but it was the alcohol that was my issue. So I'd go two, three weeks, then I'd lapse, and I'd go two, three weeks. And I'd lapse. And that's why I'm bringing this up because I wasn't relapsing because I wasn't doing any work. I wasn't trying to heal myself. I was just not drinking. Some people might call that dry sobriety or being a dry drunk, whatever. You can label shit however you want to. The fact was, is for me back then, not go, going two or three weeks without drinking was a freaking miracle. And you might be hearing some of your story in my story. It was a freaking miracle. To, go, to even go a week, to go a Saturday and Sunday, mind blown. Still to this day, I look back at the way I behaved, and I am blown away that I would go a week, two, three without drinking. And then, yeah, I did come back. I mean, I remember there being parties in my apartment complex, and I'm in college, University of Florida. We're talking freaking ragers. Three-story apartment building with um, four apartments per hall, right? So that's 12 per side, you know, four per floor. So that's eight total on each floor. And we're talking four or five parties where, I mean, the whole quad has just got hundreds and hundreds of people in it. I mean, you could just bounce from party to party. And of course, I knew everybody in my apartment complex. And I would sit on my couch while my roommates and while my girlfriend would go to these parties and come back blasted on blow and marijuana and whatever else that was at these parties. And I'd just sit there and watch movies because I was like, no, I don't want to drink tonight. I've got a 5K in the morning. I started signing up for fucking 5Ks. I hadn't run anything more than a mile my entire life. And next thing you know, I'm running 5Ks for the Habitat for Humanity. And I did that because every time I got arrested, I ended up doing my community service with the Habitat for Humanity. So I know how to like cut and hang drywall. And I know how to like put two by fours and frame houses and shit. All because <laughs> I was arrested like 10 times and deferred adjudication got me like 25 or 45 hours of community service. And I always did those hours with the Habitat for Humanity. And they kept seeing me so much, they actually just started teaching me skills. <laughs> so... Yay. Uh, that's awesome. Um, so 
back then, if we want to take what I'm discussing, these two or three weeks, and I would lapse, and then I would come back. It wasn't a relapse because I wasn't really maintaining. It wasn't like I was working on sobriety. I just stopped, right? And then I would go back to some hardcore binge drinking, and then I'd go back to a few more weeks of sobriety. So some people call it to say, well, you relapse because you returned to your previous level of use. I'm like, yeah, for a couple days, and I'd go back, and ultimately, when I moved to Los Angeles, um, right around 2012, I just went full on back into my, you know, and then it went insane, and so, but again, I wasn't working on myself, so I may have gone a couple weeks without drinking, but it wasn't technically a relapse, because I wasn't really seeking any kind of sobriety, I was just trying not to drink for a couple weeks, and so back then, let's, again, I feel like I've said I was going to bring in the stages of change four times now, let's actually do this. When we talk about the stages of change, you have pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. Now, pre-contemplation is where you wouldn't even be listening to this show if you were in pre-contemplation. And if you're a loved one listening to this show, trying to learn new ways of figuring out your loved one who is into substance use and, and is going through that, then if they're walking around and they're getting fired from jobs, they're getting relationships blowing up in their face, right? They they basically don't see anything as a problem. They could get evicted. They could lose their job. They could have their car repossessed. They could have people breaking up with them. They could be getting kicked out of college. When things are happening and they're not really thinking anything serious about what's going on in life. There's not even a part of them that thinks that they need to mellow out. It's everybody else's problem. I'm doing fine. That's the pre-contemplation. That's the part where everything, like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? It's like, they, you know, I'm good. Yeah, I mean, maybe once in a while I could drink a little bit less, but mostly I'm good. You know, I just, you know, I just drink like everybody else. It's college. It's no big deal, right? Now, are you thinking about whether they're in pre-contemplation or contemplation, now this is a really awesome conversation. The moment somebody starts to read things about is drinking a problem, even just having a conversation with someone who you know is using too much, using, and you don't want to be, what is too much? Anyways, that's subjective to a perspective. But like, let's say, you know, you're, you've got a partner and you sit them down and say, I'd like to discuss your drinking. And then they actually have a conversation about it. And they can say, yeah, I can admit there are definitely some times I drink too much. It would be really nice if I didn't do that. I really would like to, you know, maybe let's go out and let's not drink and let's go out on a date night and let's not consume alcohol, right? They are now in contemplation because a pre-contemplation, it's like, hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil. Like it just doesn't exist, right? You've definitely seen this portrayed in like Lifetime or Hallmark Channel movies, you know, where the teenager's like, fuck it, I don't got no problem. You're the problem. And right, I mean, they immediately just bark out. Like there's, there's not one part of them that will even remotely entertain that something might be going sideways in their life. They are completely oblivious to it. They take no personal responsibility. It's everybody else's problem. It's everybody else's fault. And, you know, this happened to them, that happened to them. My trauma is now my excuse for using. That's the pre-contemplation. I mean, it's like oblivious. It's like they don't even, they're walking around in the daytime and they don't even know sunshine exists. Contemplation is when we get into this mode of thinking where, okay, this isn't going well. Okay, there's definitely some times 
or my drinking, probably not so good. It doesn't mean that they're going to immediately start to uh, prepare for sobriety and recovery, but they're contemplating, right? That's, I mean, I can look back. There was absolutely some times where somebody would offer me like my 11th Jaeger shot. And I was like, you know, I'm going to get home safely. I'm going to, I, I drink and drove a lot. I've admitted that on this show plenty of times. I I have worked my way through that shame and guilt. Luckily, I never killed anyone. Certainly, I am blessed in that regard. I would highly recommend if any of you are still drinking out there, then Uber and Lyft, because I swear, I just don't think anything else would be as heartbreaking as to kill someone in a car while you're drinking. And certainly, I put myself in that position a ton of times and hurt some and did hurt some people. And bless I am for not having killed anyone. But I remember saying no to some shots because I don't know. I want to make sure I don't black out. I got to drive across town or I got to go pick up some other drugs. Like there would be that contemplation where even if it meant that I was just staying sober to illegally drink a drive home or illegally go buy some more drugs, I was still contemplating how this alcohol was going to affect me. Like that's that contemplation. Well, I've got a test tomorrow. I should stop or I shouldn't go out. You start to contemplate the repercussions and the, and the consequences for your actions. This is huge. This is huge because it, once you can at least identify within yourself or within your loved one that they are starting to notice that things aren't going well, that's that crack in the door. Right? You can't, you can't make an entire room bright if you can't even crack the door for a little bit of sunshine. You need that crack. It's that little bit, that just that little bit of space, that little bit of malleability, of flexibility in their thinking that says, okay, I agree. This isn't going well. So you now you start to think about the negative things happening in your life and how they might be connected to your using. You're thinking about what life might be like not using. You're asking around. You're learning more. You start to cut back at certain points during your day or you're using because you start to think about the consequences. You start to think about what might come from this. So in this contemplation stage, people are much more aware of the personal consequences of their bad habit, the amount of time they spend on it, the amount of money they spend on it, right? You, it's, there is a teeter-tottering here. We're not saying that massive change is going to come in the contemplation stage, but it absolutely starts becoming more of a reality that could potentially happen to them down the road. Again, if they don't even open their eyes to see the sunshine, then it's completely dark to them. At least in contemplation, they have started to open their eyes. Weighing the pros and cons of quitting and modifying their behavior, um, you know, they might doubt um, long-term benefits still, and certainly that was for me. I look back at the way I'd stop for a couple weeks and I'd be like, okay, I mean, yeah, this is good. I'm feeling a lot better, but it's like, I don't want this to be my whole life. Like, why can't I just control this monster? That's what happened to me during contemplation. A lot of, I just want to control this monster kind of thought processes. So if you find yourself in that, I'm just trying to control this monster, right? Then you're absolutely in that contemplation, right? And Again, when we want to bring in lapse and relapse back into this, you know, if you have found yourself in this contemplation, you're teeter-tottering back and forth, stopping for a couple weeks and then getting back into it isn't a relapse. I don't even know if I would frame it as a lapse because I had no intention of staying sober the rest of my life. Yes, I was sober for a period of time. But I always knew there was a deadline after it. And again, subjective to perspective, you might want to sit down and journal what you think of lapse, what you think of relapse, what stage are you in, what stage is your loved one in, 
right? Pre-contemplation is just saying F you and flipping you off and just walking out of the room. They don't even want to entertain the conversation. They spit everything back at you. As you're, that's just your point of view. You're an idiot. What do you know? At least with the contemplation, they're, they're at times, not always, but they're going to be more willing to have a conversation about their use. And even at the contemplation, they might go, hell, I mean, I once went like six months without drinking in my, uh, let's, let's see. Let me see if I can really bring this back. When I first moved to Los Angeles, I stopped smoking cigarettes three days after I landed. And I told myself no alcohol in my body for six months. I didn't say no alcohol ever. never went to a meeting, didn't read any books, didn't read any literature, didn't listen to any podcasts, did nothing. I just said, I'm not going to drink. When I went back, I would not have framed that as a relapse because I didn't put any actual work into sobriety and recovery. I was sober. You could be sober on a deserted island too. Does that mean that you're necessarily going through sobriety and recovery? Again, to me, sober, not using, is that real sobriety? Subjective to my perspective, sobriety is going out and actionably looking at ways that you can heal your trauma. And the longer and the deeper we get into this, the more recovery really starts to take hold. I've heard some people with three weeks in say, you know, I'm jeopardizing my recovery. I've talked to other therapists and psychologists who would say three weeks in, there's no way that somebody is into long-term recovery. They're in the, they're, they might be sort of teeter-tottering from sobriety into recovery, but recovery for them, based on their subjective perspective, was that it took some time to get into. Again, I don't think you'll find a definitive answer around this. But when you step into preparation, right, and you actually start to prepare, for me, that was switching over for me. The, the big moment I knew I was preparing for sobriety was when I stepped into the action of switching out my health insurance provider. When I blew up my leg on um, August 13th of 2016, sober, but still hungover, when I blew it up skydiving and ultimately tore it apart playing flag football two weeks later, um, HealthNet was who I had my insurance coverage through, and they were horrible. Their offices were all over Los Angeles. It took three, four weeks at a time to get any kind of appointment. Meanwhile, my leg wasn't healing right. I didn't have the right brace on it. I basically couldn't go anywhere and do or do anything. It was just, it was a travesty. I've Anybody who has health net, I just am bummed out for. If it has not changed since 2016, it was abysmal. It was abysmal. And that was the final straw. And so I started, as I was getting blacked out drunk every day after I blew up the leg, um, I would jump on the computer and start researching better healthcare providers in Southern California and Kaiser Permanente came up. And as I did more investigating into them, I learned that they had a very good addiction recovery program. And having had them at a previous job, I knew that all of their offices were on the same campus. They were all within the same basic area. I call it a campus, but it was just tons of buildings, but they're all there. Like park in one parking garage and you can get to every single Kaiser Permanente office you need to. Might take you 15 minutes to walk there because it was a big campus, but you could still do it. Didn't have to drive from place to place to place. So they communicated better. So that was it. I was like, I'm going to switch from HealthNet. I'm going to go to Kaiser so that when I do ultimately decide to get sober, um, I'll be able to go do this at Kaiser Permanente. They've got a great addiction recovery program and all of their offices are on the same campus. So whoever they need me to go see, I won't have to drive all over town. That was for me, the biggest part of the preparation because I knew that I was going to need outside assistance on this. 
that I wasn't going to be able to do it by myself. I, I, AA wasn't going to be enough. I didn't want to do AA. I didn't want to just go to meetings and get a sponsor. I wanted to go and get real medical professionals and go into a hospital. And I really, I wanted to do it that way. For me, my subjective perspective was this is the way I want to do it. This is what I need. That was my huge preparation moment. And I really can't look back and see anything else that I did that was as consequential that mattered as much as shifting my insurance from health net to Kaiser. What is it that's going to be your big preparation moment? Perhaps it is looking into the health insurance that you could have, checking into Medicaid or Medicare, you know, Obamacare, whatever that might look like and saying, okay, can I shift my insurance around or what does my insurance already provide and where would those places be and start mapping yourself out? Where would you go when you ultimately decide? And if I'm already catching you in the action stage, then you can go back and look and say, this is where I was at preparation. This is what I did. And down the line, you're going to have other people. I have certainly had plenty of friends, plenty of strangers, who when they find out that I'm involved in the addiction recovery field, they'll start to share and they'll start to say, look, I'm, I'm noticing some things about myself that I'm not thrilled about. And I'd love to know, how did you get into it? How did you choose to get sober? Where did you go to get the help? And I'm able to say, well, these are the things that I did for myself. And then these are also the things that my listeners and people I have met and my attendees, these are the things they've taught, they've told me. These are the things they learned that they taught me about theirs. Let's see what we can do. You know, now I get people who call me up and they're like, hey, you know what? I'm a woman. I'm in my late 30s. I'm struggling. Where can I go? The Aletheia House here in Alabama is very well known for helping women exactly like her. And boom, now I can get her the state assessment through the Resource Recovery Center. She can be certified as someone who has alcoholism. And now she can get state-funded programs. And now we can move her over to the Aletheia House. And now she can get the help that she needs. And this is all part of the preparation stage of letting somebody mentally understand where they're at. So if you're in this contemplation preparation stage and you haven't really taken action, like you have not definitively looked in the mirror and said never, ever, 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 ever again, and really started making actionable steps towards making that happen, is that lapse? Is that relapse? Is it dry drunk? At this stage in the show, I'm not sure I want to keep slapping any any of these titles on it because, again, it's subjective to my perspective. What is going to feel more empowering to you? Is it going to, do you think, tearing yourself down by saying that you relapsed because you went 14 days without having any alcohol and then you went off and drank a bottle of wine? Is that going to build you up? Because studies have shown that humans who beat the shit out of themselves in their minds and they think that this is actually benefiting them, it doesn't. Any more than if you yell and scream at a kid, it's going to make them want to listen to you again later down the road. They might fear you, but I can promise you when you turn your back, they're probably trying to get away with something. And your unconscious mind, that little child inside of you, works the same way. So when you beat yourself up and you say, I relapse, I'm a failure, I'm a failure, I'm a failure. And then you come back and you tell me, well, I've got 27 relapses under my belt. No, you don't. No, you don't, because you were never really serious. And that might be where my subjective perspective starts to really, mind you, I've said subjective perspective like 15 times in this episode, because I really need you to understand this is just me having the conversation with you. If others were in here, we could really expand upon this. And you guys feel free to reach out to me on on the socials, not hard to find me, at From Sobriety to Recovery, at Jesse Mogul, and let me know what you think about this. Right, because... 
where is the seriousness? I mean, you say 27 relapses, and I'm just like, you weren't even really, I mean, come on now. Like, what is this, is this a goal to stack relapses? Or is it like to really look at yourself in the mirror and say, what was I doing? What was I really thinking? Was I even really that serious? Because just stopping for a couple of weeks, going through some motions and doing some stuff, it doesn't mean that if you go back and have a drink that you have relapsed. According to the websites I have read, it's lapse. You lapsed, right? It's like a child learning how to ride a bike. They're doing great for a couple hours and they fall off, they bust their knee. It doesn't mean they don't know how to ride a bike. They get back on it and then they ride the bike really great for the next couple hours. It's that quarterback analogy. It's any analogy you want to work, any kind of metaphor I could throw out, you did really good for a certain amount of days, you lapsed, you went back for a day or two, and now you're right back up on the horse and you're ready to rock and roll it again. And you might be bouncing back and forth with this for quite some time. I did, which is why I told you those stories. Quitting drinking in LA for a while, right? Even when I brought binge drinking back into my life, I'd still go four, five, six, seven days sometimes without touching it, right? And then I'd have four days off from work and I'd just get annihilated, all the while, mind you, having a job that required me to be there at six in the morning. Um, it just blows my mind how good I was about showing up to work hungover. All right, but, have, but stacking three weeks of sobriety in the middle of you know May of 2015 doesn't mean that I relapsed when I went back to drinking because I wasn't even trying to really be sober. I was just trying to cut back because I wanted to get my body back to normal. So I was in that contemplation preparation stage for a while. Right, I started to prepare. You know, I wouldn't go out and buy a bunch of booze. I mean, to me, I was there was a there was a level of preparation that was going on, but nothing was important as important to me as um, ultimately not um, keeping health net. That was to me that was the most important thing that I did. So let's talk about preparation and determination, right? This motivation to change is reflected by statements such as, I've got to do something about this. This is serious. Something has to change. What can I do? Right? Even in, even in some of this literature I made into my notes, um, it talks about calling clinics, trying to find out strategies and resources available to help you quit, to help me quit, right? Um, it says even something I really highlighted in here is that it says people would skip this stage. They try to move directly from contemplation into action and fall flat on their faces because they haven't adequately researched or accepted what it's going to take to make this major lifestyle change. And I think that sentence is extremely important. They haven't adequately accepted what it's going to take to make this, this gigantic lifestyle change. Stopping for a couple of weeks and calling that sobriety when you haven't even really like really come to terms with what not having alcohol or drugs in your life is going to be like. Not having brought in a team, not having gone to a meeting, not having even talked to a medical professional about this. You know, and yes, there have certainly been people who have written me and said, hey, you know what? I just stopped cold turkey on January 1st and never drank again, didn't go to any meetings, blah, 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 all this stuff. More power to you. That's a, that, that is amazing. You are... You are like the golden phoenix in all of this. Now, these conversations never went on too long for me to find out what they were doing to heal their trauma, to work through their emotions. But certainly at some point, I, I would imagine that they had to invite someone in. Even if it was just reading a book or keep listening to my podcast, at some point they had to start bringing in information more and more. 
because a healing process, that hedonistic adaptation, that desire for the brain to continue to uplift itself is a real thing. So if you're in the preparation determination phase, right? And some people, again, who like that sentence said, they try to go straight from contemplation to action without really coming to grips for what it's going to take. Because it's that preparation that really gets you sort of warmed up, gets your juices flowing for this is what's getting ready to happen. And then there's the action stage, right? This is going into rehab. This is going into a treatment center, right? This is where you actually take involvement in steps to change your behavior, right? It's, I've read many times that they can say that this is generally like the first six months, right? But they, they say for some people that it can be as short as one hour, right? I'm reading off some of the show notes here. This stage is when people most depend on their own willpower. They're making overt efforts to quit or change the behavior and they are at risk of, right? Then it's also mentally, you know, what plan are you developing, so that you can handle not only your internal conflicts that you'll have from quitting, but the external pressures that could cause you to slip up, to go back to the way that you used to do it, right? For It says in, in my notes here, short-term rewards to sustain their motivation. When I first got sober, first day at Kaiser, it was a Monday. Went in there at like 8 in the morning. The first meeting was at 9 a.m., then I stuck around the hospital all day because there was another meeting in the middle of the afternoon. And then there was one called um, um, relapse prevention at night. So I stayed on campus the entire day. I remember going into the cafeteria and barely being able to hold down water and just feeling like crap. And I was still smoking at the time. So I'd go outside and smoke cigarettes and then I'd go hide in the bathroom and vape. And I just, I just I stayed on campus and just, I mean, I would try to drink water, throw it up. It was a shit show. But the point is, is that I learned that they had a schedule set up. So there was some stuff Monday morning, Monday afternoon, Monday night, Wednesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday night, and then Friday was my sobriety day. So I had these little short-term checkpoints, right? Friday was like, ooh, I got another week down, right? Saturday and Sunday, you know, I worked at the restaurant. I'd get off. It was the spring, so there wasn't any sports or anything. So I'd clean the house. Um, I'd go out for a walk. I'd go out for a hike. I'd just leave the house or hell, I would just sit there and study on how to be sober, right? And then Monday, would have, then I'd have all those meetings. And then, you know, Tuesday, work would start back up. Wednesday, I'd, I'd go to the afternoon meeting. I'd go to the 9 o'clock session. It was called Alcohol Awareness. Um, so I would do that. Then here came Friday again. And again, it took me like 21 days to even be able to eat like normal food. So my body was so broken down that the first 21 days was relatively, I wouldn't say easy, but it was like, I knew I wasn't going to be drinking those first 21 days just to get myself back to a balance. Once the balance came, that's when I was like, okay, I really want this. This I'm serious about this. Like we're rocking and rolling with it. That's when I took all the alcohol to my room. I gave it to my roommate and I was good. I said, this is what I'm going to do from now on. I'm just never going to drink again. It's like, I, I'm done. I'm over it. And what really solidified it, and mind you, I got sober on January 13th, was the Super Bowl that I think was like February 5th or 6th. And I'll never forget which one it was. It was the New England Patriots versus the Atlanta Falcons when the Falcons completely collapsed. And I remember having Paul on my left side and Sunshine on my right side. When I say shout out to Sunshine, that's Ron Rico Davis. He was my coworker at 25 Degrees for like six years. Um, Bless you, brother. He passed away um, with COVID complications uh, during the pandemic. 
um, he sat to my right, Paul sat to my left, and we sat there and watched the Super Bowl, and it was my first Super Bowl not having consumed alcohol in like two decades. And um, there was a buffet, there was ribs, burgers, even ice cream. It was awesome, and I ate everything. I ate everything I could eat. I was just so happy to finally be able to eat. That was the first like real day of eating that I remember. And that was it. I was like, okay. I remember coming home and literally gathering up all the booze and being like, I made it through the Super Bowl. Like, I can do that. Then nothing was going to be more difficult than that. In the summer, I went to some Grateful Dead shows. That was more difficult, but I did it, right? Because by that time, I had six months and I was good to go. I was deep into my action phase, right? And according to some of the research I've done, this action stage could, you know, they say it could be six months. Then you start to move into maintenance, now, um, maintenance is where you start to move really towards this long term, right? You'd be able to successfully avoid temptations that might lead you to the bad habit. Um, you're, you're in a place now where you're really starting to get into what sobriety and recovery is, right? You, you have this awareness around these personal goals that you've achieved, right? There's still that part of you that knows if you were to go back, it would not go well right? But you're in this maintenance now. You're maintaining your sobriety. You're working into your recovery. For me, this would absolutely be where going back to using like you used to would be a relapse because you've got some time under your belt. You've been going to meetings. You've done some step work. You've done some stage work. You've done some four truths. Like you've, you've met with some therapist or a psychologist, or you, you know, you've gotten a sponsor, like you've really put some effort into it. Right. That's to me, it's almost like the amount of effort you put in determines whether it's a relapse. Now, again, lapse is just having a slip and going back. You know, if let's say you were good for six months and you went and drank beer for three days and then you went right back to step work and called back your sponsor and went back into it. Okay. That could be considered a lapse. Now, if every weekend you keep going back to the well, at some point, you're not even really trying anymore. It's like you're staying sober for five days just to get drunk on the weekends. And it may not mean going back to drinking a handle of vodka every day or shooting up on Tuesdays after you get out of work. But certainly your your true determination, your true desire to be sober, it's waned to the point where it really is just you not drinking or using for a certain amount of days before you go back. Right? You've passed that point where you're relapsing and now you're just sort of screwing around with it. And that's great because, again, one day sober is, you know, out of every week when you used to be drunk and, and high seven days a week is still a victory. It's still a victory. Now, for those of you, you know, me included, who start to stack months and then years, right, it, a lot of us, like, when those cravings come, a lot of the things that we think about, right, are, like, I don't want to start back at day one. Like, what's, I, honest to God, I don't, I don't want one beer. If I'm going to do it, I am going to chug a fucking bottle of vodka. You know, I once told one of my roommates, I was like, boy, nothing would make me happier than the whole ocean turned to bourbon. I would just jump into that damn thing and drown myself on Johnny Walker, right? That's old Jesse's thinking. I already know one is too many and a thousand not enough. I don't, I don't even need to try. I do not want to awaken Cerebus. I'm good. I am good. And so, maintenance. And here we are. Now, maintenance too can become long-term recovery or it could become relapse. And because we already know the monster exists inside of us and we're not seeking to destroy that version of Jesse as much as I've just put him in the back seat and said, look, dude, you were in charge long enough. Let's just watch what we can do. And yes, that voice in my head that says, come on, just one. He has since gone away so far away, but hey, he's still in the back of that bus because I don't want to destroy him. 
I want him to see the greatness that we can achieve without alcohol and drugs. And so maintenance is just, it's just where you're at. Long-term recovery, there's still a part of maintenance. I don't know anyone who's got 20, 30, 40, 50 years of sobriety who still doesn't keep in contact with some sober friends or still goes to a meeting once in a while or isn't meditating or reading cool books and studying about their brain or their internal selves. Like There's just a, a growth aspect that is going to just continuously be part of who you are. So whenever you start to yell at yourself about lapsing or relapsing or just sort of seesawing and teeter-tottering back and forth with using or not using, just remind yourself, if nothing else, of this episode where I said, we're looking to empower you. I don't want you to beat yourself up. This conversation around lapse and relapse is specifically to empower you, to get you to stop calling it a relapse because you didn't use for 11 days. Because you weren't really that committed. I mean, I'm not saying that you weren't at all committed, but I'm talking about full-on plowing through walls kind of commitment level here. Because whenever you write me and say, I've had 27 relapses this year, no, you haven't. Because you weren't really committed. And you know you weren't. So I don't know why you'd want to frame it as you've had so many relapses. I don't know if it's, you feel like, well, that's it. I've, I've had all those relapses. I guess I'm just not somebody a sobriety and recovery could work for. So if you're looking to give yourself excuses to not try anymore, then congratulations, you're doing a good job at that. But that's not personal responsibility. We're not blaming and complaining and making excuses for our behavior. We're accepting that this is the stage we're in. If you are going five, six days and then of not using and going back for a little bit and the the seesawing, you're very much in this whole, you know, contemplation, preparation, action stage. It's it's almost like you stop for five or six days, you know, take some action in it to see what, 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 what would I need? Right. Okay. Well, I I could definitely use a phone list of people I could call before I want to use. That's another part of preparation. Great. Write down that phone list. Um, Yeah, I can't. I definitely can't walk past that bar on a Friday night or I'm definitely walking straight in. Cool. Prepare a different way around the block so you don't walk past that bar. You might be doing all these little practice sessions specifically as part of your preparation and not even realize it. And I'd really like for you to frame it that way. And I didn't even know I was going to say that until I literally just said it. That a lot of this teeter-tottering, seesawing back and forth from using to not using is just a part of the preparation for you to see what works and what doesn't work. Okay, I guess I can't go back to that sports bar for a while. Okay, I guess I can't call that friend up for a while. Oh, I guess I can't go to that neighborhood for a little while. It's in understanding that about yourself that you can begin to prepare other things to do when those environments come calling, when those people come calling. When those things pop up on your schedule and you're like, yep, probably can't go to that wedding because I'm definitely going to want to use there. Sorry, you know, uncle, brother-in-law, I'm not going to be able to make it to your wedding because you know what? I'm going to be around so much booze. It's just going to be super triggering, you know, or I'm going to show up for the the ceremony, but, uh, you know, and a little bit of the reception, but then I'm going to dip out. Like in that preparation stage, you're learning what's going to work and not work for you. So when you really dive into the action stage, and you really start to build team sobriety and recovery up around you, you are full-on ready for the wild and whimsical way that this is going to radically change your life. Pairing these stages of changes and really fully understanding where you're at has been one of the most important things that they have taught us in this program. 
And while my therapist did bring this up with me, I didn't understand how important it was when it comes to helping people. Because if you are trying to give somebody help in a stage that they are not in, the the help isn't even going to be embraced and received the way that you want it, let alone will the person have the opportunity to really utilize it. Because you're trying to give them maintenance steps. Like, okay, now let's weigh your food and let's get you a really good, you know, workout program in place when this person's been doing meth for 12 years. Like, let's just let's just get them to the action stage of, of not using meth for a week and then two and then three and then, you know, I don't know, maybe once every seven days eating a little broccoli. Like, get them into the early portion of action. And not trying to shove somebody so deep into the maintenance stage that they're like, holy damn, like this, I'm not ready for this. Right? Trying to give somebody action steps on how to be sober when they're still in the contemplation stage. Right? Trying to help somebody get prepared for sobriety when they're still in pre-contemplation. It's extremely important. If you're a friend of a loved one, if, if you listen to this show to learn more about how to be around them and help them, that you start paying attention to what stage they're in. Because then you can start to Google ways to help somebody in contemplation for sobriety and recovery. Then you can start listening to the show and say, okay, they're in preparation stage right now, so let me help them prepare. Let me show them how many different ways they could get to work so they don't drive past their favorite liquor store. They They don't drive past that street corner where their drug dealer is always at. Let me help them prepare for what might happen if they have an emotional upheaval. Right, by giving them a f- few phone numbers of people that they can call, by listening to this show and introducing them in ways that they can go from emotionally triggered to emotionally grounded. There are a bazillion resources out there. I'm not the only one, but I certainly enjoy being a voice that you trust to listen to. And a lot of this conversation is subjective to my perspective. And it's, it doesn't really matter whether you wholeheartedly want to believe my versions of lapse, relapse, or just dicking around with sobriety and recovery or not. It's what is going to most benefit you. And I absolutely think that reframing a lapse here or there, or that you aren't even really, really wanting to get that deep into sobriety and recovery. And you're just, you're just playing around with it. And that's fine. Part of your journey might just be one foot in, one foot out for a little while. But each time you do that, I don't want you to get discouraged whenever you get that one foot back in. Okay, you did it for a day or two, but you're right back up on the horse. My last time using was just my last time using, but it wasn't my first last time. It was just my last, last time. I know I can sound like a tongue twister, but there was hundreds of times where I was going one foot in, one foot out. And back in the day, I really did think that going 7, 14, 21 days was really stepping into sobriety. I was like, yeah, I'm sober. I don't need AA meetings. And then 21 days, I'd be back at it. Well, I wasn't really that serious anyways. You know, I was just just staying sober to get that test out of the way, right? If I'd known some of this stuff that I know now, then I would have beat myself up a lot less. I would have empowered myself, realizing that I'm the creator of my life, not the victim of it. That there is no villains. There's just people who will challenge me in the way that I think. And it's how I choose to respond where I become the creator of my life, no longer the victim. And there are no heroes. I am not your hero. I am your coach. I can be your mentor. I can be a lot of things, but I'm not a hero. I'm just a dude with a microphone and a lot of interest in this stuff. And now when you start to empower yourself, it doesn't matter what somebody else's definition of lapse or relapse or sobriety or recovery is. It matters what yours is. 
I just wanted to bring this topic to you today so that you don't beat yourself up too much whenever you go back and you have a slip, you have a lapse. It's part of your journey. If beating your own ass every single time you take a slip back is what you think is going to help, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's not helping you. I want you to look in the mirror. I want you to have your own David Goggins accountability mirror. Look in that and say, is the way that I'm talking to myself right now benefiting my long-term goal of being in sobriety, of being in recovery, and of loving myself? 99 million times out of no, 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 100 billion or 1 billion or whatever. <laughs> probably shouldn't have tried to grab such a big number. 999 times out of 1,000, um, shit talking to yourself in your head and beating yourself up, not going to be very beneficial. So I wanted to empower you with this conversation by letting you know that if you're sitting here and you're, you know, a little ticker and you keep ticking up relapses on like your bedpost or on a calendar, you're probably not really relapsing as much as you're just having some lapses or you weren't even really that serious about sobriety and recovery anyways. And part of your journey is this seesawing back and forth. Empower yourself with that and realize that you're preparing and you're contemplating. And when you're full on ready to take some action, you'll know when it's real, just like I knew when it was real. Because when I woke up on January 13th, 2017, Friday morning, and I walked into work, and the very first face I saw was Ron Rico Davis, a.k.a. Sunshine. And I was like, that's it, dude. I'm done. I'm never touching alcohol again. And he got tears in his eyes, and he hugged me, and he's like, what are you doing to prepare, what are you, what are you doing to prepare for this? And I was like, I'm going to Kaiser on Monday, and I'm super pumped, and I can't wait. He's like, you going to be okay for these next couple of days? I'm like, dude, I can barely hold down water. I was like, my life is miserable right now. We're good here. And that was it. And, that I, and I knew that was action. I knew that was action. And you will know when it's action too. All right, my friends, if you'd like to learn more about how to be coached by me, some of my workshops, some of my upcoming seminars, where my next speaking engagement is, would you like to learn NLP? If you want to be involved, there's a million ways to do it. Social media, I got a stand store. The links to it are in my show notes. If you'd like to support what I'm doing here, I am driving all over uh, Northern Alabama, going to places and speaking, and, and I'm putting together the Sobriety and Recovery book. Um, right now, it's soft. Um, it's like the soft due date is going to be at the end of 2023. But right now I'm meeting with all these different people and I'm gathering all this amazing information and I'm meeting. It's just, it's, it's insane. The amount of effort I'm putting into this. If you would like to support me uh, with some gas money, with uh, some lunch or whatever it is, you can go to the stand store to do that. You can go to my, um, what is it called? Patreon, my Patreon page. I never talk about that. Um, you can go over to my Patreon page and you can support that way. Um, by all means, reach out to me on social media if you'd like to learn NLP from me. That class is coming up in a few weeks. I talk about it on the ad that runs right before this episode and all my episodes. Um, and so many of you have already reached out and had amazing meetings with me. Join the tribe. The hub is there for less than a value menu a meal. Um, you can have access to that every single month. There's some great content coming out um, in December to uh, really launch us into 2023. The courses that are already in there, I've gotten a tremendous uh, feedback on. So whatever you want to do, if you want to be involved, it is not hard to find me. I'm out here. So as always, inclusivity over exclusivity, the power of positive energy release in your life will flow. Every day is the best day of our lives when we wake up sober. Shout out to sunshine. Glow on. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. 